As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is emergency pod time. Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance bringing this to the VIPs on the night that the Vancouver Canucks have made major changes to their organization. Jim Benning, gone. John Weisbrod, gone. Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner, gone. Bruce Boudreaux is here. Now, we went through the entire pod, and right at the end of it, the Canucks finally made it official. And during the course of the podcast, obviously, we've been trying to digest and make sense of all of it, but... It is, in fact, official before we actually go to the start of said pod. Massive changes here with the Vancouver Canucks organization. Stan Smeal, who is going to be the interim general manager, along with Francesco Aquilini, will, in fact, speak to the media on Monday uh, afternoon, sometime after 3 o'clock, from Rogers Arena. And we'll we'll find out for real why this all happened and where the organization goes from here, Drancer. Well, I, I mean, more than anything, I just want to let people know, like, we recorded this in podcast in full, right? Emergency pod in full, and then the Canucks made their announcement official. So over the course of the emergency podcast, you'll hear us say things like, surely they're not going to announce it this late in the evening. <laughs> Wrong. Uh, we we speculated about whether or not ownership would chat or not and, and concluded that they probably wouldn't. Wrong. Francesco and Stan Smeal will meet with the press on Monday afternoon at Rogers Arena. Um, and all the news that we talk about sort of, you know, oh, couldn't confirm it, but reportedly all that stuff, it's all official. And we did sort of have a really good sense of where this was going with the structure of the new front office. Um, big changes in Vancouver, overdue changes in Vancouver. Um, a, an interesting day about to unfold. Uh, already has unfolded on Sunday, but it'll be another fascinating day at Rogers Arena at the rink on Monday. And with that, also Scott Walker has been named as an assistant coach. I know that name's been out there as well. Uh, one I didn't quote, think that was going to get done tonight. 
I thought yeah. that was going to get done tomorrow. I'd heard that he was coming. I'd heard that he'd had a ticket booked, but I didn't think that part of it was going to get done tonight, which is partly why I didn't expect the announcement. But there we go. A couple of things Scott here. Walker. Quote from Francesco Aquilini, these are difficult decisions, but we believe that we would have a competitive group this year. As a result, I'm extremely disappointed in how the team has performed so far. I'm making these changes because we want to build a team that competes for championships, and it's time for new leadership to help take us there. Uh, and then also, as far as adding Bruce Boudreau, says, I'm excited to add Bruce Boudreau as our new head coach. And Scott, as an assistant, Bruce is one of the most experienced coaches in the NHL with nearly 1,000 games behind the bench and a successful track record working with some of the game's best talent. Scott is a young coach with an excellent reputation and will fit in very well with our group. And with that, here is our emergency pod. We weren't sure if the events of the game the other night against Pittsburgh were going to get us to this point. Uh, A jersey being thrown on the ice, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Fans booing, fire betting, uh, so much going on, and it finally happened. As you've been able to process what's gone on here as we do our emergency pod, because the VIPs demanded it, um, why did it finally get to this point? Why tonight, Drancer? Well, it's impossible to escape the connection between the fire bending chance and the jersey on the ice on Saturday night at Rogers Arena with the fire Gillis chance in 2014. It's like once the city turns on you, you're out the next day. That's now happened twice in Canucks history in the last 10 years, right? Um, you know, I don't love that as precedent, to be totally honest with you, Farhan, right? Like there's times where the public will turn on an organization and be wrong. Like you have to have Jim Benning, there are lots of reasons why the Canucks needed to make this move and and move on from the Jim Benning era, right? A lot of them. We've talked about them at length. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the fact that the Canucks are, you know, they haven't made a <laughs> first round pick in two consecutive drafts, have a bottom 10 prospect pipeline, have only ever dra- uh, developed or a draft and developed one defenseman in the last eight years. And, and it was Quinn Hughes selected seventh overall, right? Only have two top four caliber defenders on the roster, have an NHL roster laden with middling contributors on contracts that are too expensive and last for too long. And are also at the bottom of the Western conference standings. I mean, that's, that's reason enough to move on, right? Surely. But, but I, I don't love the optics of doing it because the crowd turned on the guy. Like, make this move because it's the right move to make. And make it three weeks ago when it became pretty obvious to the entire industry that Benning was looking for Green's replacement and didn't seem to have the weight to push the button and fire fire and replace his coach. Like, what what was the point of waiting till, till the man was completely embarrassed in this city? Yeah, like, isn't that just a cruelty? Isn't that just a cruelty? Yeah, it's, it's a terrible way to do business that you're actually looking for his replacement while he's still coaching. And that's kind of part of this group. They do business the wrong way. So right now they've done it a half-ass way. And the half-ass way is bringing in Bruce Boudreaux. Now you can say what you want about Bruce Boudreaux. And we're going to dissect during this emergency pod the legacy that is Jim Benning. Whether or not Travis Green should have been fired. Um, all of it. Okay, but let's just talk about how this went down. And you bring it up. that for, Three weeks ago... They started looking for Travis Green's replacement. Ultimately, they couldn't come to a deal with who they wanted to. 
This particular deal with Bruce Boudreau was not executed by Jim Benning for obvious reasons. He's no longer here either. It was done directly by Francesco Aquilini. And, you know, the news of Benning, or sorry, of, of Green broke before Benning did. But what should they have done? What they should have done with the coach is exactly what they're doing with the GM. They fired the GM, uh, you know, reportedly John Wise brought as well. And they're working within in an interim situation. Right, and, and you can break down exactly what's happening there, but they haven't gone outside to hire. They're working from within until they can get to a place where they're comfortable, big picture and long term. Whether it involves a president of hockey operations, whether you know it'll it'll involve a new GM at, uh, certainly at some point, whether it's before the end of this year or in the off season. But they're giving themselves time by hiring by working internally to get them to the finish line that is the 2021-2022 regular season. Meanwhile, with the head coach. They just went out and gave somebody term. Wasn't big term. And we don't know what the dollar amount is, but it is two years. So that does affect the next general manager that comes in. And you're putting yourself as an organization in a position where you're going to have to pay a head coach and or potentially two head coaches and a GM for two more years if this goes the way it likely will, right? That you bring in a new GM, he agrees to keep Boudreaux for another year and try it on for size, or he moves on from him and you give him the latitude to do that because you want the GM so badly. but. Again, you've made decisions based on finances to this point. You've delayed based on that to this point, and now you've screwed yourself again. So why couldn't they have treated Travis Green which and, and the coaching situation with at least the same level of, you know, I don't want to say deference, but at least they did the GM situation right. You can debate the timing, right? And, and listen, for the VIPs, let's be clear. Both Thomas and I think that Jim Benning should have been replaced some time ago. We are not going, just based on our jobs, we have not professionally come out and said, Jim Benning needs to be fired. And that's just because generally, and you can speak for yourself, but that's typically not how we do things. We we kind of lead you to that direction and you pretty much have a good idea of what we think, but we also have to work with him. So we're not just going to go out and say, fire the man, right? Um, but ultimately, you know, we all, we both kind of felt that should happen. Uh, and in the case of Travis just, Green, yeah. go ahead. I just think you got to save, you got to save this guy should be fired for like the moral failing, you know, like, like Jim Benning. I I thought this, I think this team has been mismanaged for much of the last eight years, but that's a hockey thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. When I come out and I'm like, this organization needs to fire this guy tomorrow, it's going to be like a Stan Bowman situation. Like, I, sure. want, I only want to play that card when it's like, you know, truly this person has it's neglected a bad person. A, their duty. Yeah. Like, yeah, they are. I agree. They are. They've, they, it's a moral. Like, it's, it's a moral fuck up. Like, that's the sort of thing that I think you, you should call for a job. I, and, and I think it's important to save it. Like. You know, I, I disagree with the hockey decisions uh, Jim Benning has made is very different from I think he should be fired because of X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? Like for me, it's got to be something like something true and, and deep and about like morality and character that, that results in, in a media member coming out and saying that guy should be fired. That's just my view of, of how this should work. You know, and, you know, and I, I'm the same way. I, like, I, I totally am. And I'm not going to go out and say this has to happen. And, you know, like, we, we all develop relationships. And whether we like a guy or don't like a guy, we still try to be able to separate where we're at professionally. You know, um, in the case of Travis Green, uh, I think both of us believe he's a good coach. Uh, I put that out there in my tweets, um, responding to the first news of, of him getting fired. 
Uh, and, you know, I had multiple people come back at me and say, what are you talking about? He's not a good coach. Now, two things can be true. I believe Travis Green is a good coach, and I believe Travis Green in his next hockey opportunity, which will come sooner than you think, because the industry views him as a good coach, is going to really knock it out of the park because he's not going to be in as dysfunctional a situation with a roster that's that flawed and will have learned from this experience. All of that said, I can't sit here and say I don't think he deserved to be fired. And I say that not because I think he's a bad coach, but sometimes whether you think somebody is of quality or not, the situation warrants it. And in this case, the situation was this team was completely underperforming. The roster wasn't good. But when your top players aren't performing and your penalty kill, which some of it is structurally related and, and a roster related, I should say, but it is fair to say that some of it is strategically related as well, right? So there were things they could have done differently, even though the roster was flawed and he wasn't getting enough out of his best players. This level of losing could not continue. And I think he understood that. And I think we understand that. So even though we both think he's, and, and tell me if, I, if I'm not characterizing your opinion correctly, but even though we both think this guy's a good coach and a greater level of blame falls at the feet of the general manager, I think for me personally, I get why this happened and I can't say it's the wrong decision. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it does not appear to have been the, the outgoing general manager's decision to fire Travis Green. And as such, I can't disagree with the decision. I think it would have been a mistake if the coaching change had had happened under Benning's watch, if that makes sense. Like just from a process yeah, yeah. Totally standpoint, agree. I didn't think I didn't think the general manager had constructed a roster of sufficient quality that he should get to be the guy to replace Green. And so, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair that the club decides to move to a new opportunity and and one thing i actually like about this move i've, I've had the uh, opportunity today uh, as i've been catching up on this story to chat with a bunch of players a bunch of former players who, who played with uh or current players and former players who played for bruce bruce boudreau been coached by bruce boudreau and one one sort of phrase kept coming up which was easy going he's easy going right there's uh you know he he's like a friendly locker room presence. I don't think he's as obsessively detailed in his approach to managing a bench or or running the day to day around a hockey club as Travis Green is. And I think if you're going to go for an in season replacement, it's important to bring in, especially if you're going from the guy who's really hard driving, you know, who's in that Pete DeBoer mold, right? That that Elaine Vigneault mold. To go to a guy who's a little bit easier going, who's a little bit more of a player's coach, right? I think that's the type of move that can maybe pay dividends. Like if you're going to make the in-season change, bring in a guy who might actually be a breath of fresh air. And Boudreaux might actually be that. And that might actually matter for some of Vancouver's star players who have struggled mightily. Although unfortunately, right, while I think Bruce Boudreaux is an incredibly good coach, like, I, I have a high opinion of him. Um, you know, he's not two top four defensemen. Like, he's not the guy who's going to get Pedersen the puck more in stride in the neutral zone, you know, in, in space to create something. Like, he's not that guy. So, you know, obviously the club felt the need to make a change that would change the day-to-day -day from a player's perspective, right? That would change the vibe around a team that, you know, they see as 
putting in an un- unacceptable level of performance on a night to night basis and not unfairly. Uh, but, you know, I, I at the end of the day, I can't overcome the fact that the roster Bruce Boudreaux is inheriting here, you know, is not setting him up for success any more than it did green. And, and we'll see what he can do with it. But it's a tall order to get, you know, star players going when they never have the puck, like when they never get the puck cleanly while transitioning, you know, and that's yeah. still going to be a problem with this defense core. So good luck to him. Good luck to him. I, I, there's parts of this that I like, especially the fact that they brought in a guy who is going to be such a contrast with green. I think considering that I actually, I actually understand and can see the logic of the move and, and quite like that aspect of it anyway. Despite the fact it's a two year contract and the new GM is going to come in and won't have brought that coach under this contract. But that's okay, because a new guy coming in should should take some time to evaluate anyway. So with the new guy, uh, take us through what you understand the new management structure is going to look like and what we can expect their mandate to be. Because it's a lot different to say some interim people, you know, to an interim person, do your thing, try to show me it should be your job versus just steady the ship, don't F it up, and let's get to the next guy. Yeah, so, I mean... Stan Smeal, my understanding is that Stan Smeal is going to be in a leadership role of some capacity atop uh, hockey operations, the Canucks hockey operations infrastructure with an interim title of some kind. Um, Elevated role, too, for Ryan Johnson with an interim label. Uh, I also do believe that Henrik and Daniel Sedin, who've been more frequently around the Abbotsford Canucks than they have around the Vancouver Canucks to this point, are going to be more involved on a day-to-day basis. So that's sort of what I understand, but I, I don't have any of that confirmed or at least locked down because no one's answering their phones tonight. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a tough one to cover. So, um, you know, I think the... I my, The thing with Stan Smeal, right, is Stan's a man of character. He's held down just about every role you could within the organization over the years. Um he was probably most empowered during the Gillis era, right? Where, where he oversaw, um, you know, the college free agent recruitment with, you know, Dave Gagne and, and Jonathan Bates down the line. And, you know, they had some notable success. Like that group had some success with Tanev and Stetcher and Volpatti. And I mean, there's a few names that were brought in and then, you know, you also have some names with some guys who didn't amount to anything, but that's kind of the job. Like that's kind of what you do. You, you place some bets. And some work out and some don't. Um, so, you know, the thing with Smeal, though, I don't think he really wants this job on a long-haul basis. No. Like, that, that's not what he wants. That's not who he is. He's not, he's not the guy who wants to be the GM of this franchise, right? Um, so that, to me, would imply a caretaker portfolio, but I don't really know, I don't really know what the mandate is or the guidance yet. And I suspect we'll find out more in the days to come. Surely we're not going to get an announcement at this point on Sunday night, right? Like, surely it's going to wait till Monday morning for everything to be formalized. Um, you know, I'd, I'd imagine, I'd imagine, and well, in fact, I know Bruce Boudreaux is in town. So, so surely he'll run morning skate tomorrow um, and, uh, and coach the game because the Canucks do play in less than 24 hours from when we're recording this. So lots to do. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the mandate is. I hope that's clarified, but I would expect it to be something in the, in a caretaker mold, considering what we know of Smeal himself 
and and sort of his ambitions and and you know his his capacity in this new position. Yeah, and, and like I said, I'm curious to to know if they're going to do a big broad search, which I do believe they are, or if all, if all of a sudden there's a window here for the Twins to eventually take over uh, by the end of the season. I don't think that's going to happen, but you, you just never know. Like n- none of this would surprise me, but I'm curious to see how this conglomerate management group, uh, because certainly Smeal does not have the ego to want to put his head down and, and grind through this without taking input. So you're going to get Johnson and the twins to, to offer some input, but I'm curious to see how aggressive they're going to be allowed to be. Right. And really not that they've got a lot of room to be aggressive regardless, uh, just because of how tight this team is to the cap and how much term they've got on contracts. And, you know, I think that's difficult for, for people at their current level to do. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it probably just is handle the day-to-day stuff until we can make a bigger decision. And hopefully we get some clarity. Like I, I could totally see an announcement happening that doesn't involve Francesco Aquilini. I could completely see a scenario where Ryan Johnson and the twins step up to the mic and introduce Bruce Boudreaux and Bruce Boudreaux talks and the other guys are left to have to clean up the owner's mess and have to answer questions without the owner actually being there. Could you, would you be surprised if Francesco was actually there if and when there's an availability tomorrow? I would be shocked. I would be shocked. Crazy. Crazy and insulting to the fans. And I want to get into that in a sec, but uh, let's take a quick break because we want to talk about that and also uh, Jersey Gate because that was a lot of fun. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Drancher, we could sit here and rail on the fact that we're not going to expect Francesco Aquilina to address the media and to address season ticket holders, right? Because ultimately, we're just the conduit to you, to the VIPs, to the people that care the most about the team. But um, we don't know that, so we can't rip him on that until it actually happens. And there'll be time once there is some availability where we can, you know, decompress and dive into that possibly as early as tomorrow. But let's talk about the jersey, okay? So, you know, my understanding is that things have been really, really stressful in ownership offices today and in management offices today because they are feeling the pressure. They felt the heat. They heard the chance. They heard the fans, not just fire betting, but sell the team. And then a jersey got thrown. And with, with less than two seconds left in the game. And uh, I was, you know, because I'm here in Winnipeg, I was watching the game on television and uh, John Garrett, was was pretty upset, right? I mean, he, he, as he quoted, he got on his soapbox and talked about how, you know, that was wrong and how he was disappointed in that and that that shouldn't happen and it's a lack of respect and so on. So I tweeted and, and among, you know, in my tweet, I said, you know, even Cheech was upset. Now, 
I was not trying to be critical of Cheech. So if the tweet came across that way, because everybody kind of either criticized Cheech as a, uh, a, a team employee, or they told me I didn't know what the hell I was talking about because I've never worn a jersey, therefore I didn't respect it. You know, apparently all these Kanak alumni have come to me with that. Um, and, and the tweet was never meant to talk about Cheech. It was just one example of a number of people who were offended, like just general fans that were offended that a fan did that. And I'm thinking, why? Like, why are you offended by that? Why can a disgruntled fan who invested in a jersey not choose to show his frustration in a way that they can throw their jersey wherever, right? Now, you can say, well, if a player slips on it and falls, but that's not really what everyone's criticism is. You shouldn't disrespect the logo. It's bullshit. Because what's happening on the ice isn't very respectful to fans. And it's not like there's a threatening <laughs> message in all of that, that I'm going to beat player X up or beat management X up. Like, there's no threat. There's just frustration, right? And I didn't wear the jersey, so I can certainly respect John Garrett being upset because he wore the jersey. But, you know, my, my tweet originally was not meant towards him. So if it came across that I was criticizing John, I wasn't. I really like the man. Um, and, and I like his work. Uh, so, and I, you know, I like you, I've known him a long time. It was just more the narrative that anybody beyond a player should be upset that someone disrespected the Jersey and the logo. Like it's my investment. If I want to be pissed off, I can be pissed off. Can't I? And ultimately I think it made a difference. You should be thanking that guy that threw his Jersey. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't have any strong opinions on throwing jerseys. Uh, I, you know, it's never been really done in Vancouver. You remember it used to be an annual Matt Cook, thing in man, Toronto? Matt Cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The... that was they were they were throwing a jersey to distract Aginla. No, they threw the jersey because they were pissed off. They were about to lose a series when they were the favorite and playing at home. Well, and then it made a huge difference. <laughs> it, it did, but I don't, I don't think it was. I don't think that was the reason that it was. It was meant no. to distract. Nonetheless, you know, I'm not surprised at all it happened because it just happened in Montreal and it became such a big thing. Somebody was going yeah. to take note of that and do it. It was inevitable, and if it made people look at the situation even closer because how much you think it affected the players sitting on the bench well, because that's so, not traction. I don't think, I don't think the, I don't think the dismissal that we saw was like put together all on Sunday or on Saturday night into Sunday. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I don't think this, this clearly the, the wheels have been in motion on this for a bit. And if anything, the discord, the dissatisfaction, the way that paying customers expressed that dissatisfaction at Rogers Arena on Saturday night, that to me maybe expedited it, maybe made it a Sunday decision <laughs> as opposed to like maybe that impacted the timeline. But I don't think it, I think these changes were coming. It was it was a matter of when, not if. And it so you don't been think the four while. like there were four decent performances at the end of the trip, two of which resulted in wins against awful teams. You don't think that kind of stayed things a little bit? I mean, maybe. I was a little surprised that it didn't happen last week. Like I thought Friday was the day to do it if you were going to do it cleanly. At least if you were just going to do the coach. And I, well, we've you know, talked I said, at times, and you didn't think anything was going to happen. What changed in your mind? Well, I mean, I think they've been working on it. I was I was wondering, though, I, I'd sort of had this thinking the longer it went on, and especially as we got past Friday, the longer it went on, I thought, honestly, that they were hopeful that they could get through, limp through this season before making changes. Mm -hmm. And I just think the performance was never, like, it was never going to work because of how big a train wreck this fall had been for the team. It was never going to work. This was inevitable. 
it's, you know, I, I don't really understand why it wasn't done more proactively. And like the organization has clearly been telling the most prominent insiders covering this team with the best sources of information, like Gary Mason and Elliot Friedman just a week ago, were both reporting that like, until they have the right guy long-term, nothing will happen. And now it's Smeal. So, you know, I think changes have been in the works for a bit. I think the fact is though, is that probably the fan reaction and the, and the recognition that like, Oh, we can't go on like this through the entire month of December when we play a million home games, some of them against some really good teams. Like we can't have this every night. And you know, that should have been evident weeks ago, weeks ago, but here we are, here we are reactive again, right? An organization that tends to be reactive once again, seems to have been reactive. And while I do think that changes have been in motion for a bit and that this wasn't just a plan cooked up on Sunday morning, um, you know, I do think the timing was accelerated because of the way that the atmosphere at Rogers Arena devolved on Saturday night. So as we look at what ownership's approach is going to be big picture, we talked about short term with what the current management, the new management team is going to be tasked with, but big picture. With Mike Gillis, they were able to have, they gave Mike a lot of room, but as it got into the final couple of years, ownership started getting a little more involved and that didn't go well. And eventually they made a change, but then they knew they had to eliminate the optic of medicine of meddlesome owners. So then they got Trevor Linden in as president of hockey operations, because that was the buffer the fans wanted, right? I, number, number one, he was, a name that fans loved, but also that concept of having a buffer uh, to show that ownership is not meddling was there. But then very quickly they realized they couldn't handle that anymore. They got rid of Trevor and kept Jim because Jim gave them the answers they wanted. And as we've gone since then, in the last five years post-Trevor, ownership has become more and more and more and more involved. So now, do you think from both a financial perspective of wanting to shell out the money for it and from, a, you know, these things come full circle. You talked about it with the head coach. You have one guy that's intense. You bring in another guy that's laid back. Can ownership change its approach in the same way? We've been perceived as being way too meddlesome. We now need to change the structure so we can get, we, we can be seen as not being directly involved that way anymore. What, what do you see playing out that way in terms of management structure going forward? Will we finally see an organized, professional organization? Well, we they need so many more bodies in hockey operations. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, Chris Gear has been an assistant general manager for, you know, 24 months now, maybe a little bit less than 24 months. Um you know, some of the most challenging months in the history of hockey, but nonetheless, uh, Ryan Johnson, if, if his terms interim assistant general manager, I mean, he's run an AHL team for five years. He's got a fair bit of experience, but he'd be like one of the more experienced people within the organization. Um, Henrik and Daniel have been in hockey operations for four or five months. Stan Smeal has a ton of experience, but you know, I don't even know if he's ever held an AGM title. Right. He's sort of been an advisor and a, an assistant coach and a minor league head coach and, mm -hmm. you know, a director of player personnel. And like, you know, this is a big step up. It's a big step up and one he probably doesn't really want, like one that he's doing out of a sense of duty, most likely. Um, you know, having not talked to him, that's my read. 
uh, based on what I know of him and, and you know, the, the comments that I've had from people who know him well. Um, you know, you need, you need someone with some weight here. You probably need multiple people with some weight here, some real experience. Like, you need more, so much more. And so, you know, what I think the club needs to do when they do address their fans on Monday is make it clear that they're launching a big search for a president of hockey operations, that this is a caretaker regime. And that they're aware of the monumental task ahead of them. Because this is not, this might be the end of an era, but it's not the dawn of a new one, right? This is a bridge. It's not a final destination, right? From what we're beginning to piece together of what this new management structure looks like, this is not a new era. This is not the Stan Smeal era. This is a bridge to something larger. And what, what does that thing look like? Well, I mean, for me, it better include some real heavyweights. Like, it better include some heavyweight executive talent at the top of the organization, the type of people with some weight to properly and effectively manage up, you know, in, in their dealings with Canucks ownership and invest, invest the money required to build a good organization. You know, it's not, it's not affordable. It's not, you got to spend. Like, you got to build a team of decision makers capable of competing with the Carolinas and the Tampa Bays and the Torontos of the world. Um, you know, I think the Canucks have made some interesting decisions based on, you know, what we understand of, of what their new structure looks like. I think the Boudreaux decision in particular, uh, you know, looks savvy to me. Like that looks like the type of thing they should have done in terms of replacing green. If you were going to replace green in season, this is as good as you could have done. In my view, without making but it interim, without making it interim, because you could have gone that way too. Which, like, yeah, no, with the GM. no, but but you don't you you don't get a big you don't you don't you don't get, get the bump you don't get you the don't bump you want you don't accomplish anything going from Green to Bradshaw. You really don't. Like, there's no nothing accomplished there. You go from Green to Bruce Boudreau, you know that's a very different look. Like that's a that's a very different look. I mean, Shaw's also a you know tactical guy. Highly detailed, right? Like Boudreaux's, Boudreaux's a totally different thing. This is a totally different thing. If you're going to make the change, make it as different as you can. I like that part of it. That's the only part of it that like, that, that, you know what? That makes sense to me. That like, that seems sharp. Um, at the management ranks, I mean, you know, I think, I think highly, like uh, everything I've ever seen from Stan Smeal sh- indicates to me that he's a man of character and that's the highest thousand compliment percent. I can pay someone. Yeah. A thousand percent. Um, you know, he's all of that. R- I think I think I think Ryan Johnson, I think Chris Gear, I think uh Jonathan Wall, I think the Sedines. Like I think the Sedines have great instincts. I think I I have very little doubt that, you know, down the line Henrik or Daniel Sedin could be the Vancouver's answer to Steve Eiserman or Joe Sackett. But I do think they need to be put in a position to grow and succeed as hockey operations executives. And I don't think that happens if you don't build the right organization to accomplish that. Like you need to build an organization that gets the most out of people. And the Canucks are an organization that's gotten the least out of everyone, everyone affiliated with them. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Like, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of roster surgery that needs to happen. There's a blue line to build. A whole blue line, pretty much. <laughs> right? Like, there's there's a ton to do. A whole oh, prospect wow. system to revamp. It's going to cost a lot of money. They have to be fucking invested, Farhan. And, and, and look, Today's not today's more than anything, though, more than anything. I don't look at today as like a new dawn. 
you know, it's always darkest before the dawn, a, a famous Francescoism, right? Uh, I don't look at this as dawn at all. This is like this is this is a candle. This is a candle lit at night to help guide you to the latrine. Like the, you know, dawn dawn is ahead and, and we'll figure it we'll figure out where they get to to. But this is a this is a candle. This is a candle that's just helping you piss in the wind. <laughs> oh, we gotta take a quick break. I gotta catch my breath. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So, Drancer, we've gotten into the whys and why nows and, and all of that. But as we look back, and, and Jim Benning's a nice man. I don't want to sit here and like just you know devour him in this space. But I think both of us are probably somewhat stunned looking back on this, right? Um, and, and you haven't covered all eight years of it because you spent some of that time in Florida, God bless you. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've lived eight years of it as have all the fans and the VIPs. How did it go this long and what will Jim's legacy be? I think a fair bit of it hinges on what comes next from guys like Pedersen and Besser and Quinn Hughes, right? If those guys are the core of, uh, of the next great Canucks team, then I think Jim Benning's legacy will at least have a silver lining on it. In the event that those guys at no point are the core of a great Canucks team, right? Dem and throw Demko in there. Those four guys. Sure. Um, you know, in the event that those four are never part of a great Canucks team, then I think the legacy is going to be, you know, pretty negative. I think it's going to be looked at as um, you know, the general manager that essentially bungled the transition out of the 2011 core and into something new. As we look at Benning, two playoff appearances in his eight years, and because we, we assume certainly that, that year number eight is not going to result in a playoff spot as far as this year, 8-15 and 2 to start the season, and uh, they lost for last, they've lost 10 of their last 13 and sitting in 14th right now in the division. And, you know, we, the first playoff berth came really with the core of the previous regime. And then this one, we view what happened in the bubble as a product of goaltending and just generally an overall anomaly uh, where they may not have made the playoffs if the entire season was able to play itself out. You know, the one thing that people say when it comes to Benning is that the one strength he had was his ability to draft. Like, we know his ability to navigate contracts wasn't good. Uh, trades were hit and miss. 
Um, you know, building an organization, certainly thin, but that's partly ownership's fault. Is he, is the narrative around Jim Benning draft and develop guy, A, what is it? And B, is it accurate? Because the, the one thing people tell me all the time is, well, he was good at drafting. And from my perspective, you don't get credit for top 10 draft picks. That's a result of sucking. You get criticized. <laughs> yeah. Like you get criticized <laughs> if you don't hit on a top 10 draft pick like Ole Levy. And you get praise for later selections. Like, I'll give you credit for Nils Hoaglander and Thatcher Demko. I'm not giving you credit for Elias Pettersson. I'm not giving you credit for Quinn Hughes. Because when you draft that high, you should not screw that up. Do you, you know what I'm saying? No, then, I mean, there's a lot of people internally that wouldn't give Jim Benning credit for the Elias Pettersson pick anyway. <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah, because it, um, it no, may not have been his. But you know, you know, you understand where I'm going with it, right? That, That's you know, there's going to be some guys a little lower that you get a bit of credit for. But then when you couple that with U- Uo Levy and the wasted draft picks, um, that's tough to necessarily say that that was the best part of the Benning regime. That the best part of the of the Benning era drafting, too, was 2017 through 2019. When, you know, the club employed Judd Brackett and, and Benning was part of that process. Like I'm not bringing that up to take any credit away from him because he was part of that process, but those were the years where the team did really well, you know, 2016, 2015. I mean, 2015 was okay. Like the Besser pick is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 2014 Vertanen, that's kind of a whiff. McCann was a hit, but not for them. Demko, that was a great pick. Uh, Triamkin, not so much. Triamkin, a few picks ahead of Braden Point. Yikes, right? And, and I mean, if you look at the last two draft classes this organization has had, they're as bad as anything in the Mike Gillis era. That, you know, this, that, well, the era that didn't have picks, essentially, because they were going all in because they were in a cup window. Well, sure, but I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean... The, and the, the lack of volume is a big part of it, but also they didn't find players with the picks they used. Sure. And just like the last two Canucks draft classes. And I mean, yeah, sure, jury's still out on some of these guys, but it's like if you get one player from those draft classes, it's going to be a miracle, an absolute miracle. So, you know, and, and I mean, you look at it, you know, you've got, uh, you've got Yoni Yermo over Justin Sordiff, like brutal. Klimovich over Stankoven at the time we were side-eyeing it. Then Klimovich had a really good training camp. I mean, maybe, but he's been a healthy scratch the last two AHL games. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't look like he's quite ready for pro hockey in North America. Um, that's totally fine. He's still a high upside player, but, you know, I don't know that. I think these two draft classes are probably completely vacuous. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the myth of of Jim Benning, the super scout drafter guy, uh, you know, is just that. It's a bit of a myth. You know, and, and, and I sort of look through eight years and I just see value bleeding everywhere. Like I just see a lack of strategic investment all over the roster. You know, I see Dorset and Spiza extended over Brad Richardson. Um, you know, I see, um, like, remember how long we debated the Booth and the Ballard mistakes in this market? Yep. Yeah. And then, and then the, in the Benning era, we had like one of those a year. Like Beagle and Roussel, that happened the same summer. Erickson, like we saw a mistake of that magnitude every year. Um, so you know, I, I mean, honestly, I think it's very likely that we'll look back at the Benning era as you know, two things like unique 
not for how bad it was, but for how how bad it was for how long it was ba- that bad for. You know, most most general managers don't get this long to perform in the way that Benning did in the executive chair uh, for the Canucks organization. I think that's sort of a key part. And then, you know, I think the other part we'll look at is is in the big picture of it is just that, you know, a ton of wasted opportunities in dismantling the Sedin led core, a failure to extend the competitive window around the twins or to give them one more shot with a good team, um, you know, followed by it sort of spinning off into something new and interesting. Um, you know, in the wake of all the losing that they did in the back end of the Sedin's career and, you know, the missed opportunity from that in assembling a roster that's not very good, that's, you know, overpriced, overcommitted to depth players, like non-contributing or middling depth contributors, and how hard it's now going to be to dismantle it to make the pain that was endured from 2016 to 2020 count. Like, count. Like, it's going to be hard to make that pain count, even. And that's sort of where you get into a lost period of time for this franchise, and that's kind of where it feels like we're at. Is this a good job? No. What makes it a bad job? I think the mix of scrutiny and a lack of ownership support. The mix of scrutiny and a lack of ownership support. What about the actual like the amount scrutiny of- in the market? The scrutiny in the market makes it t- tough. And I think the fact that, you know, like ownership has spent, they've tended to be a pretty high spending team in terms of salary, but I don't think they're spending a ton in the front office. I don't think they're spending a ton on facilities. It just feels like the club's falling behind in some of the marginal investments that are required to be a world-class organization. Uh, There's no practice facility on the horizon. The building itself is rapidly aging. Like, I think this organization needs a ton of work, needs a massive revamp and rethink. Um, You know, well outside the scope of a traditional hockey operations executive, to be totally honest with you. And it just doesn't feel like there's appetite to do that work or invest in that work. Well, that's the thing, right, is that, uh, you know, they've, they've not had a president for a reason. Uh, we've talked about how the organization isn't run professionally for a reason, and, and because all those things cost money. And when Mike Gillis came, that was the goal, right? It was to get on the cutting edge of a number of different areas that other teams weren't exploring, and they were given the reins to invest there. I don't know that the club, or sorry, that ownership totally gets that, right? Like, they get spending on players. So as a result, they haven't just necessarily spent, they've wasted. But in some of these other areas that aren't necessarily as obvious to this ownership group, I think it might be tough to resell some of those concepts. And you talk about, you know, some of these other organizations and, and the way they're um, resourced. I, I, I just don't know that the owners will necessarily justify that. It's going to require a significant shift. And ultimately, it requires them to shift back into how they allowed Mike Gillis to operate before he led the organization to their more successful era, right? And I'm curious to see if they go back that way after the way things have deteriorated and devolved here. And you talk about why it's a bad job. I think it's a bad job. I mean, the two reasons you outline are are fair, especially as it relates to ownership resources. But I think the other area is simply there's so much work that's here to that's been left here to do because of the contracts and how this roster is made up, it's not like you can just come in and say, bam, 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 you're out, you're out. You're, you can't do that. Like these are going to, these moves to get rid of some of these contracts 
and to recalibrate your window, this is going to be freaking work for anybody to come in here and clean up this mess. It's going to be a slog, Farhan. Like, there is a lot of work to do. And it's not straightforward work, right? Like, it part of it involves gauging, you know, what's next for and, and the appetite of players like Besser and Horvat and Miller to stick around and whether or not the club can get those players on value deals. Because here's the other problem with losing. Players don't want to be part of it. And I don't mean those guys want out. I just mean that there's like a tax associated with playing for a losing team versus a winning team. Sure. You know what I mean? 100%. And then, and then you don't and then you don't get the guy for a year shorter and a half million less, at which point his contract makes sense and you can fit him into a winning team. You know what I mean? Instead, yeah, you have it's to what happened in 2010 and 2011 and 2012. Is guys right, took less it, to be here. It's funny. I had exactly I, I saw all, Manny. It all Go Yeah, ahead. sorry. No, you saw Manny. Yeah, I saw Manny this morning at breakfast and, and we were, you know, we were chatting a little bit, and he's one that always jumps out to me. He took less to come to Vancouver. He had other teams, including Edmonton, willing to offer him more. He took less to come play in this city for this organization. And when we think of some of the value deals that some of the players from that core were on, it, it's just it's not happening here. Right. And, you know, you look at Brock Besser, who's going to be an RFA next year. And uh, it's, you know, and a year after that, there's other deals they've got to move or work on. I, I look at this and it's it's frightening when you look at 23, 24 and both Besser and Miller are both up at that point. Or sorry, uh, Horvat and Miller, I should say, with Besser up as an RFA at the end of this year. Like, you're right. Like some of these guys are really going to need to be sold on the idea of staying. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to. You know, and that's that's I think why you also make the coaching change that they made, right? Is like you got to evaluate Pedersen right now. Like, is Pedersen a is Pedersen a first line center on the next Canucks team that can contend? You know, is he? Uh, he he looked like it for 185 games going into the season. Certainly hasn't looked like it for most of the 25 games they played this year. Like, you know, you need to find out with a different voice what he is. Like, and and then evaluate from there. Um, you know, and that's the headline item, like go on down the list. And there's a ton of different big questions that this organization has to figure out. I mean, you know, Tanner Pearson on down, um, is, is Connor Garland. Like, do you think this team ever makes the playoffs with both Connor Garland and Oliver Ekman Larson on the roster? Uh, yeah, I think they'll probably stumble in at some point, but I, I don't, I don't think they I don't think <laughs> you don't stumble into the playoffs yes, in this you league. Do. Yes, you, you can. Uh, you can, you, you can, but they're, they're, do I think they're going to be a legitimate contender? No, I don't. And yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, does this require a deeper strip down and go through rebuild 2.0? And if that happens, none of those players are sticking around. I mean, yeah, you've got, you know, you've got contractual, uh, things that will allow you to keep Hughes and Pedersen, but the other guys, like they're going to get out of here as soon as possible. And you, you, you might have to have a reset to your reset because you talk about Garland was a good ad. And but it doesn't fit. I mean, we talk even about Tanner Pearson that, yeah, we like Tanner Pearson as a player, but not for where this organization is currently. He's a finishing piece on a contending team. And, and that's just not what this is. Right. So do you have to then truly take it down to the studs and then rebuild from there again? And is there appetite for that, both from the part of those young players, let alone the fans in the marketplace? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think the. I think the soul searching necessary is very complicated, complicated. And honestly, probably beyond the scope of an interim group, right? 
And I think the tasks facing this organization are beyond the scope of an interim group. Like they need heavyweight visionary leadership within this organization to transform it, to like bring it into the 2020s um, to compete with the teams that have the practice facilities and the massive R&D budgets and the, ma- you know, um, I mean, the Canucks have a huge scouting staff, but, um, you know, the the pro scouting apparatus and a director of player personnel and three to four assistant general managers. And, you know, they need more bodies, more ingenuity, more creativity, like they need more of everything. And I don't see how you get there without, uh, you know, a visionary leader like a hockey czar empowered by ownership to, you know, a, a empowered by ownership, but also enjoying autonomy from ownership to genuinely make this club you know a model organization again because it hasn't been for much for much of the past eight years or or for any of the past eight years and i think that too i think that too is a big part of the legacy that benning's going to leave behind right is that the, he inherited a team that was seen as a crown jewel of the league and he leaves a team that's you know just had a jersey thrown on the ice and you know rolls through every city and you know Everyone thinks they're a patsy. They're the Washington Generals. You think Jim's relieved? I hope so. Me too. Me too. He did his best. He did his best, you know? He was the wrong guy for the job, but he did his best. Yeah, and then, like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the, be- probably I, the best. I feel way like to a jerk it, right? saying it, but it's like, yeah. you know, he did his best. I, I know he worked hard. Like, he put in, a, he put in the hours. He put in the hours at amateur scouting. He put in the hours at the rink, but I just think the, I just think, Hockey in a cap era, it's too complicated. It's too complicated for, you know, people like it's too complicated for the old hockey guys. In my view, you need more than that now. Yeah, they're, and they're certainly not the ones they can still do a small role, but they're not the ones equipped to be that visionary. Is there an obvious well, name need, out yeah, there? You need, you need their you need their hockey expertise. Like you need hockey, you know, a visionary leadership divorced from hockey expertise is nothing. In, in hockey, anyway. You need hockey expertise. Like, I'm not downplaying that. Benning has that in spades. Yeah, it's you just, just can't sufficient. be in charge. Yeah, it's just not sufficient for a key decision maker. You need, you need someone who's, you know, a real executive in a salary cap league. Come on. Montreal, Mon- Montreal hit on a pretty good name to head things up for them and Jeff Gordon. Is there an obvious candidate that's available today? I don't think so. Me neither. I don't think so. I don't think, like, there's no Bruce Boudreaux answer for for the GM or president of hockey ops role, in my opinion, unless you unless you uh unless you want to go draft the mayor of Oak Bay, <laughs> we're not there yet. But listen, on that note, we we did want to we did want to give this to our to our loyal VIPs and make sure they understood we heard you because I had so many people respond on Twitter. As I'm sure you did saying we need an emergency pod. So we all love emergency helps. pods. I know we look, we hope this helps. We hope all of you are a little more soothed after today or after tonight, because you've all been clamoring for it. And the response that I got, you know, once uh, we started digesting and, and talking about the trade in social media platforms was just, just so much excitement and you hate to say that because these are human lives, but people are invested. They're fans. They're passionate. We've seen it. And hopefully this is the start, right? And we can look at this team differently and we can start evaluating differently because, we, you know, we talked in the last pod that we can't just keep talking about missing the playoffs. Well, now the people that have said we're going to make the playoffs, ownership notwithstanding, aren't there anymore. So we can start looking at this team a little bit differently now in terms of what's next. And yeah, there's going to be days when we're frustrated and we just talk about the mess that is. 
because nothing is going to happen fast here, right? Uh, after tomorrow's announcement, nothing's going to happen fast because it's it's not like the old days. Like I remember when Mike Keenan became coach here, and mm-hmm. Mike Keenan is why I got a full time job at TSN, and and I've told Mike this. So Mike shows up, and there became a, a process where one day there would be a trade. The club would actually tell you where the person lived at that point. So you could go to his house and interview him there. He got on the plane. The next day, the guy that came in on the trade, they would show up, they'd practice. And a day later, there was another trade and it just kept happening. And then, and we had a, my boss from TSN at the time, Mike Dake showed up and he said, he was here for a week. And he said, this is crazy. We got to hire you full time. And at that point I was doing a bunch of different Jack of all trades, things at TSN. And he said, no, 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 you got to be full time on air. This is, this market's crazy. And with that, our emergency pod is done. We will have a lot more to get into on Monday when Francesco Aquilini and uh, interim general manager Stan Smeal, legendary Stan Smeal, who had his number retired, will speak to the media. We know what happened the last time an icon in the community uh, took over, even though this is different circumstances. But I'll look forward to hearing what both Stan and um, the owner have to say. And with that, we also want to remind all of you that the Athletic Hockey Show Publishes four times a week. Monday, Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian recap the weekend that was in the NHL. And they'll have more on the changes here in Vancouver with Travis Green out, Bruce Boudreaux in. Tuesday, Dylan Larkin, the captain of the Detroit Red Wings, joins Sean Gentilly and guest co-host Max Boltman. Wednesday, it's the roundtable with Rob Pizzo from CBC Sports and Sarah Sivian, along with Jesse Granger from The Athletic. And then we've got Thursday, Ian's back with Down Goes Brown to get you set for another busy weekend of NHL action. As for you, we'd like to thank... All the VIPs for listening to the VanCast, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. You can also subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all that bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. And we will be back as early as Monday, if not Definitely by Thursday, but we will give you everything you need to cover this story. Top to bottom, Drancer, you'll be doing it in print. Looking forward to reading your column already, my man. Yeah, it's already up. Go go to theathletic.com slash Vancouver. It's a big comment on big changes in leadership for Canucks hockey operations. And, you know, all the best, by the way. Like, I do want to note a couple things really quickly before we go. One, Nolan Baumgartner, the coach responsible for the historically bad PK. Like, he's got to be one of the longest-tenured people in this organization, both as, like, a player and a coach. He was in the minor leagues, too, like, before Travis. He predates Travis as a minor league coach for this franchise. Baumgartner has run a ton of PKs that were either very good, good, or league average. Like, this isn't on him and shouldn't be seen that way, in my view. Um, You know, I also think Green's uh, an excellent coach and... Um, Jim and John Weiss brothers, no doubting their work ethic. So just want to leave that here. Um, those those gentlemen in particular. Uh, but Bomber in particular stands out to me as like a guy who should be defended a little bit. Like at the end of the day, he wasn't able to go out there and win a draw himself, nor was he able to be a lefty penalty killer. He was a righty as a player anyway. But it does feel a little, I feel like, I feel bad, especially for Nolan Baumgartner, who has to wear this historically bad PK. It's not on him. It's really not on him. All these guys are going to wind up landing again in different roles, probably the right roles for them. And I hope all of them, from Benning to Green and everybody in between, winds up having their share of success. But more importantly, I hope the VIPs get something to cheer about 
and uh, we'll be back next. Uh, we'll be back soon on the next episode of the Vancast.